Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the end of the world <laughs> as we know it. Uh, I think it's an REM song, uh, but uh, if not, what, you know, War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells, somewhere. I know, I know, it's, I know it's from a lot earlier. Um, I'm Anne, Anne Lee, your moderator, Dr. Anne Lee, as I keep kind of, you know, boasting. Uh, I have a new PhD in Southeast Asian Studies, and please be impressed by that as I, um, thank you, thank you, yes, yes. Um, okay. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but um, for science fiction, my first encounter with science fiction was actually in my undergraduate days, and it was through film. I did a film degree. And um, I mean, I'm sure many of you have seen Metropolis, Space Odyssey, you know, all these classic films. And they, watching the films made me then actually look to the uh, written word versions. Um, and when I read a lot of the science fiction at the time, it just felt like, wow, there were all this, you know, huge... Everywhere I looked, there was a, a white middle-class male. Uh, uh, and I think for... Um, I don't know if you care whether it's, ah, hello, welcome, welcome. Uh, Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, all sorts. There, there was very few, actually. Uh, some of their universes were actually quite limited, so I thought. Uh, and at the time, Women's Press had uh, came up with a new uh, series of science fiction by authors who happened to be women and feminists. And this began, for me anyway, a kind of a uh, new world of science fiction uh, that, that actually meant some different alternatives. But half of it, of course, was mocking the genre uh, where, where you have sort of, you know, real strange fear of women and all, you know, names all have X's, Y's, and Z's in them. Aliens all look like foreigners and migrant workers. So um, I don't know how science fiction really, really, uh, uh, in terms of different universes, that, that it was for me. Um, but it's, for me, it's, it's like it's taken 30 years for science fiction to actually come to Southeast Asia and places that I know it. So I'm really very, very uh, happy uh, and um, privileged to be with three different writers here. Um, I like to kind of go a little bit into the bio. I mean, I'm sure you've read a bit of it, uh, but I, I, I'm going to uh, talk about that, talk about them in a bit more detail, embarrass them a little bit, maybe, I don't know. But just in case anyone's not familiar with specfic or uh, speculative, uh, speculative fiction, I have a definition from the Australian Specfic Festival, which is the best one I could find. Uh, the stuff of dreams and nightmares encompassing science fiction, fantasy, and horror in all its guises. New, near future dystopia, far-flung space exploration and alien encounters, tales of magic and wizardry, bone-chilling urban horror, and the madness of the surreal. So that's the, we are fittingly the final session. Um, I like to stick to the questions written in the marketing blurb. Um, we could go anywhere, but you know, nothing like pleasing uh, your audience. So we talked about this. The key question is, how do writers harness their wild imaginations to create a believable work that defies our known reality? So I asked uh, each of our panelists to um, please choose a piece of uh, their own writing that expresses a favorite theme of theirs, and also to choose another uh, excerpt that, um, in which they can kind of relay to us what was, what was the experience to be edited 
or to be translated, um, because there is no good writer without a good editor, correct? So in terms of the how-to aspect of this uh, uh, question, um, I really hope we can get into some of the technique and details uh, as well. So um, uh, let me start with Jason. Jason Eric Lundberg, he's the author and um, anthologist, I almost said anthropologist, of over 20 books. Um, and there's a long list of them, but including Fish Eats Lion, uh, The Alchemy of Happiness, and Strange Mammals and Embracing the Strange. He's also fiction editor of Epigram Books in Singapore, so he is himself a big fish. Uh, this is a very important role uh, that, uh, for, for fiction, uh, especially for science fiction and fiction in general, uh, to come out of um, Southeast Asia. He's also the founding editor of Lonta, uh, the journal of Southeast Asian um, Specfic. Uh, he's born, he was born in Brooklyn, New York, and he's been based in Singapore since 2007. He has a master's degree in creative writing and is an active member of PEN America. I think there's a disproportionate number of high achievers that come from Brooklyn in New York. Is it something in the water or maybe in the sewers? Or a lot that move there later. <laughs> so. Um, and then I'd like to go to Lokman, uh, Lokman Hakim. He's an author of novels, short story collections, and poetry in genres ranging from science fiction to thriller, young adult and fantasy. Um, some of his published works, he's, he's very prolific. He's written a lot of novels. Um, and he's been published in, in uh, Dewan Sastra, Tunascipta, uh, Eccentrica, and Britaharian. Um, his short story, Pungap, which he's... Uh, very kindly selected as one of the excerpts was shortlisted. 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 Arubang, I went to rest. Shortlisted for the 2019 Commonwealth Short Story Prize, um, and he's currently vice president of the Malaysian Writers Society. Now, Lokman also leads various lives. One of them is that he's a full-time infrastructure engineer, and they have no idea of this other life that he has as a writer. He keeps them distinct, right? One day we'll have a panel which is about the other lives that we all lead apart from writer and all the rest of it. Okay. So, Tiffany, thank you for waiting patiently, is a writer and literary translator. She's author of novels Under Your Wings. The US edition um, is out next year called The Majesties. Um, and of the, she's also author of the fantasy series The Odd Fits and The More Known World. And the third of that trilogy, is it gonna be a trilogy? Yep, it's gonna be out next year. Oh no, I'm still writing it. Oh, still writing, okay. Hope, okay. Hopefully it will be out There's a bit, a bit of undue pressure there. there we are. Uh, her translations from, um, in, she translates from Indonesian to English and uh, a number of really star novels, including novelists, Indonesian novelists, including D. Uh, Lestari and her novel Paper Boats, Laksmi Pamuncak, uh, the Bird Woman's Palette, and also the queer speculative uh, poetry by, by Norman Eriksson Pasaribu, who's actually here as well as a guest of the festival. And um, you won two Penn Awards for that collection. Uh, and it's important that Tiffany has a PhD in English from University of California and now lives in Sydney with her spouse and two children. She lived in Indonesia from the age of 9 to 15, which I think is why you still maybe have a strong connection with uh, uh, Indonesia and Southeast Asia in general, even though 
you live in Australia, which is supposed to be part of Southeast Asia sometimes, or parts of it, I'm, I'm not sure. But um, she has written a wonderfully provocative essay on uh, Western appreciation of Indonesian literature, uh, taking to task certain gods of uh, non-native speakers, um, which is on uh, elect uh, electricliterature.com. But okay, so um, if we can start with uh, each of the excerpts, I'm gonna ask uh, Jason if you could please start with yours um, and maybe tell us a little bit about why you selected it and um, what theme is it and why do you think that particular theme is something that you work with that ap appears or just doesn't let you go? So we're just doing one at a time, right? So yeah. this is just the first one now. Yeah. Okay. Um, so hi, everybody. Thank you for being here uh, on Sunday afternoon. Uh, so so I, was, I write about lots of different themes, but I think the, the one just kind of in line with this, uh, with this panel, uh, The End of the World as We Know It, is uh, the story is called Bodhisattva at the Heat Death of the Universe. So it's not just the end of the world, it's the end of the entire universe. And uh, there, is, there are very strong elements of Buddhism in here. I'm, I'm a Buddhist myself, and so um, they're, they're just kind of in my, in my layperson's kind of study of, of Buddhism, uh, just the different things that I've been fascinated by, especially uh, causality and kind of very, very long chains of, uh, of causation. Um, that come with karma, and so, so that that even if you're not a Buddhist, I hope you can still you'll probably uh, hope you can get, hope you can get something out of it. But uh, that's that's part of what I like to write about uh, in here. It's, it's a big element of my uh, novel that's coming out in June uh, next June as well. So uh, yeah, but it's also about this this uh, this couple basically that's uh, they're post humans, and uh, they've been kind of intertwined in each other's lives for a very long time, and. And uh, it's like kind of any long-term couple, they bicker and, you know, they kind of get on each other's nerves. So, so I'm just going to read from a bit from, uh, from this. So this is Bodhisattva at the Heat Death of the Universe. And this is from my latest collection, uh, Most Excellent and Lamentable, which is on sale next door. Um, okay. Ja materializes in my front yard, having finally found me after an interval of roughly five million years, give or take a few millennia. He is human again and male, wearing those ragged, worn-out monk's robes he seems to cherish so much. They ripple and flutter in the breeze, even though my little asteroid hosts no atmosphere and therefore no wind. Above us, the twin red supergiants of this system, which I long ago named mother and father, so much bigger and older than when I first settled in this place, rotate in their dance of peanut-shaped illumination. Hello, Ja, I say continuing to rake pebbles into the form of a gigantic asterisk, the image reaching halfway around the asteroid's face, taking patience and artistry and determination. He and I both know what the message means, and I suppose I've done so in order to call him here. And Kurt Vonnegut fans might know what this means too. Despite millions, millions of years of solitude, I suppose I still want the occasional contact. Yeah. My name is projected, sent directly into my mind. I prefer the physical act of talking, of sending air up my esophagus to vibrate my vocal cords and produce sounds. The fact that no air can be found in the immediate vicinity is irrelevant, and both Jean and I are past such trivialities. Have you finally decided to forego this existence and travel with me into the pure land? Can't a person call her former lover for a chat without leaping into the subject of existence transcending? 
Has it been so long you've forgotten how to engage in small talk? Jaws' expression remains neutral, but a dozen microscopic gestures flit across his face. I smile at the thought that I still know how to irritate him. What would be the point, Yah? We have had every conversation that it is possible to have, and so many incarnations and iterations that I have lost count. Even after achieving enlightenment, I remained in cyclic existence in order to guide every last sentient being to nirvana, including you, who are now the last. I am tired, and the stars are tired. It is time to end this foolish game of yours. Game? You think I've been playing a game all this time? I throw my rake down onto the carbonaceous chondrite and begin kicking at the pebbles of my asterisk, scattering the image into unrecognizability. It seems that my message has been both prescient and affirmative. Ja is still an unbelievable asshole. You still don't understand me, you arrogant bastard. Not during the many incarnations in which we were married, not when I was your daughter or mother or father or brother or sister, and certainly not now. You want games? I'll give you games. I dematerialize, leaving behind my corporeal form, my latest home, and all the plants and pets I conjured up from the asteroid's physical material and manipulated for my amusement and companionship. I leave it all to crumble and become pure consciousness, leaping light years with but a thought, pushing myself beyond the bounds of the Milky Way, skipping from one star system to another as easily as I once skipped over the paving stones on a pond filled with artificially enlarged koi, the pond where we first met all those endless lives ago. After I slipped from a wet stone and splashed into the shallow water, Ja, crouching on the bank, laughed. Not maliciously, but with a wisdom that already understood futility and acceptance. I took his hand then and, and laughed too at my sorry state, and our karmas became forever intertwined, like a carefully sculpted bamboo. I sensed Ja's presence dozens of light years behind me, but closing the gap quickly. My path leads directly through the hearts of moribund blue supergiants, immerses me in the violent radiation of hypernovae, and skirts the infinitesimally detectable event horizons of supermassive black holes. I feel the urge to clutch every passing star to me and fling them back at Ja as casually as a clot of dirt, but incorporeal as we both are, the effect would be negligible. I run, Ja chases, and billions of years flow by. It gives me time to think and to reflect on the gradual darkening of the space around us. The galaxies are burning themselves out, what seemed like endless fuel and energy proving its finitude before my vision. Will it be possible to exist once the universe has expired? And, as Ja has so frustratingly pointed out, what will be the point? Damn him. We're going to stop right there. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit how you got to the, the, this particular theme? I mean, you mentioned that uh, you know, Buddhism, you are a Buddhist, uh, but in terms of your influences or you know, the, your favorite authors, favorite yeah. works? This one was very, very specifically influenced by Italo Calvino, uh, his book Cosmic Comics. Uh, it's, uh, it's a response to one of the stories that's in that book, and um, uh, I just really, I really like the idea of these two, these two beings that are, they're post-human, they're not, they're not really human beings anymore, but they still exist, and they still, and they still have this connection with each other, even if it's at the end of the universe. 
Um, and uh, there, is, there is that supposition that that's how the universe will end someday, that it'll be a heat death. So basically, you know, every, every star, every planet, everything will spread so far apart that um, the heat that's generated from, from all these stars and everything and nebulas uh, will exhaust itself and at some point just everything will kind of burn itself out. And so I, I was really interested in the idea of this very, very far future kind of story with these two beings that are, don't have much, we can't really relate to them uh, in that state, but trying to give them some kind of recognizable human quality. And, and I think it's, it's in that relationship between the two of them. Thank you. Um, now can I ask Tiffany? Uh, oh, sorry, Lokman, what did I say? Yeah, now let me go, let me go with Lokman. Next, uh, uh, if you can please read from um, your piece. Tell us a little bit about why you selected this. Okay, um, I'm going to write, uh, read something from um, a short story called Enigma of Huraira. And the reason why I choose these stories is because um, it's kind of cute to me. Because um, I have um, uh, recently, I'm always doing a Subo, subo, somewhere in the town, in the um, somewhere around three Mysuri mosques around there, and there's always a cat lingering around, and they are going into the south and window the line up, and they just um, breach the uh, prayers there, and everyone just simply ignore the cat. But somehow I feel hey, this cat has breached our own ritual, and I think. Why don't everyone? I, but I'm thinking about what if those cats really can go into the mosque during the dawn, and how about those Muslims who didn't attend the mosque during the super prayers? So, oh, what if the cat is human? What if the cat is Muslim some more? And and there's a difficulties to write something like that, like how to make it sounds real, not ridiculous, and that's the challenge for me to write that. Okay, so I'm going to read um, Edima Uraira. This one is translated by Ted Masun over there. I, I can see him here. Okay. Um, Al-Najihin Mosque, my Suri town. At first, it seemed there was nothing strange about the prayer hall today. I came a little earlier today because I wanted to read the copy of Christmas short story collection that I have found tucked in, bin, in between the religious books that line the shelves in the corner of the mosque. My attention was focused on Huraira, who was sitting in another corner surrounded by other similar golden fur cats. At first glance, they looked as if they were deep in congregational prayer. After a double take, they looked as if in deep discussion. It didn't make any sense, and the mosque wasn't all too tired either. There were a number of people who had come to perform optional prayers or to read the Quran in here. I looked at my watch, still another hour till Maghrib, I came to the conclusion that the cats that took up residence in this mosque were no ordinary cats. I no longer wanted to read that book. I approached the cats and sat cross-legged next to them. All the cats turned to stare at me as if I to let me know my presence was unwanted. I was about to tap the head of one of the cats when somebody tapped my shoulder instead. Don't disturb them, the stranger said. They're having a religious discussion. Huh? I was dumbfounded. Cats having a religious discussion? Follow me. I didn't know who this stranger was, but he reminded me of a cat. Was it because of his facial features, his peculiar smell? I wasn't too sure. 
Maybe it was his the way he grew his mustache. It vaguely reminiscent of a cat whiskers. And yet I was compelled to follow him anyway. I didn't want to cause a stir in mosque. Other people were deep in prayer or busy studying the Quran. I wouldn't, it would be done to disturb the serenity of the mosque. He took me to the bookshelf in the corner. He grabbed a book that was suspiciously tucked in between the other books with spine inwards. The title emblazoned on the cover was the 30th Century Guide for Muslims, and the image that accompanied it was a cat in robes and turban, looking very human-like indeed. Humankind can no longer carry out Allah's word, said the stranger. We have another choice besides human. He handed me the book. Hold on, who are you anyway? Hold on, who are you anyway? Aren't humans the stewards of this world? Isn't this something unchangeable until the end of time? What do you mean we have another choice? I flipped through the pages of the book and landed on the introduction. It was signed with a cat's paw print. Look around you, look. Who inhabit this house of Allah now? Humans or cats? Nonsense. I stopped mid-sentence. Now everyone in the mosque had turned into a cat, exactly like on the cover of the book I had in my hands. I almost let out a scream when the call for Maghrib prayer started. I could not decide. Will I have to stay in this mosque and perform my prayers here while surrounded by these cats? Or just go to another mosque instead? It was difficult to process the situation. It was scary. It was unnerving. It was confusing. Come on, let's pray first. The Maghrib lecture will also take, be taking place afterwards. You will then come to the understanding that cats will be the superior choice over humankind in such religious matters. I shook my head. I wanted to believe that everything this stranger was saying to me was some sort of strange fiction. But once he had turned into a cat, I knew I no longer belonged there. As far as I know, the rules of prayers require a Muslim to be sound of mind. Do they not? I was sure. I was turning mad. As soon as I had completed my prayers, Hurairah approached me and sat in my lap just as I was offering my dua to Allah. I stuttered as I struggled to finish the dua. I looked around and saw that I was no longer surrounded by cats in robe and turbans. The mysterious, the mysterious strangers was also nowhere to be seen. All the people who had turned into cats before were now human again. That was a relief. As with this morning, I tried to move Hurairah from my lap but fell. This time there was no stranger to tap me on the shoulder and help me out. The Maghrib lecture was just an endless mewing and milling. It wasn't anything I could understand. Hurairah had become a ball of gall, heavy. My bones were pinched against my muscle. I tried again and again to move Hurairah aside. Like your sins, I cannot be removed, said Hurada. I will always be one of your sins. And then he went to sleep. I'm hoping this nightmare will end tomorrow. This is all I ask for right now. Once the Isha prayers are over, I will perform the Salatul Hajjat, the prayer of need, in hopes of freeing myself from this enigma of Hurada. May my prayers receive some ratification from angels in heaven. Amin, Ya Rabbal Alameen. Thank you. Thank you, Lokman. <clears throat> Now, you, you, you said you went, you, you went to Subhu Prayers and you thought, you saw a cat there and yeah. wondered why. How, what, I, what I really like about this piece is also the humor that you have working there. I mean, the, you, this sort of, um, some of it is satirical, I think. Uh, but how, when you were writing about it, did, did you, were you concerned about any um, religious kind of uh, constraints about writing about cats and 30, 30th, 30th century guide for Muslims? Okay, basically when I write something like this, like cats and, and I involve religions, previously I tend to work 
on something serious. I didn't write something humor, humorous like this because um, I'm afraid that once I write something about Islam, I will offend the Muslims. But now I'm part of them. I've been, I've been, um, I've been praying five times a day at the end. I find the humor. I find the fun in that prayers itself. I find I find the peace and peaceful. And I try to when I get myself comfortable with Islam, I didn't write something offensive about Islam itself. And therefore, I keep thinking on writing something else, something that I will enjoy and it didn't offend me as I was a Muslim myself. And I try to put my fantasy as, as I, I, in my, my imaginations, my imaginations, what's it? Um, but I think you ridiculously as usual, yeah, because uh, every time I'm saying something like cats or something like human or someone who do, doing something that I'm not used to, I tend to uh, come up with a lot of what if and what if. And this time the what if is, what if the cat is a Muslim and is better than human? And I'm thinking, and this is ridiculous. I'm, right now I'm in the mosque, why I'm thinking something like this? And I cannot skip that. Therefore, I come up with the stories and get the characters from, from this one. Um, at the Anajihin Mosque, there's a particular there's an imam or someone here, someone there. And um, I like the way he recites Al-Quran, the way he reads. And he can read a longer verses of Al-Quran every time he, he conducts uh, as a Debi'ah Imam. And I wonder how he memorized all this Al-Quran. And, 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 and my mind keep thinking, what if the cat is that imam? Right. <laughs> That's of course, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of everyday thought that would come to your mind. Can you explain to us, uh, it's the enigma of Huraira. Uh, can you explain to us what is Huraira? Huraira is the cat. It's the it's name of the cat. It's the so. name of the cat. And basically, it's uh, um, based on the Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira is, I think, uh, a friend of, of Nabi Muhammad or something. Uh, how to say, uh, he loved cats. He really loves cats, and people know that he loves cats so much. So I want to dedicate this um, enigma Huerta. I have put it into the stories as a, one of my characters. Thank you very much. Uh, now, Tiffany, um, could you say a little bit about why you've selected your excerpt? Um, oh. And you also use a lot of humor in your science fiction. I mean, it's not to say that all science fiction is dreadfully serious just because, you know, a dominant theme is the extinction of man in the face of, you know, resources that are running out. But could you tell us a bit about th this? Yeah, your, your sure. Excerpt? Okay, so um, this is the trilogy in progress that Anne was talking about. Sorry, I'm just being really shameless because the wing of the bookshop that is selling my books is, uh, closed at four. So I have lots of books that just happen to be with me. So if anyone is interested further and wants to take a look at these, this massive pile of books I have with me. So anyway, um, but um, so it's part of the Odd Fit series. And, and this excerpt um, is from the sequel, actually, The More Known World. Um, that's another Asian woman on the cover, not me, um, because I get this question um, more times than I would care to um, uh, recount. And um, so this, this particular excerpt is, um, so in the first novel, um, Murgatroyd Floyd is the main character, and he's the son of British um, expats, like really like 
um, asshole, sorry, asshole British expats in Singapore. Um, but the second novel shifts more to, um, uh, her name is um, Anne uh, Su, and um, she's actually a like, Taiwanese-American. Um, and it talks a bit more about her backstory. And um, when Anne said, oh, pick an excerpt that deals with more, uh, deals with the themes that um, you like to deal with. And uh, the fact that you can never escape your past and the pain from the past always haunts you and will always affect you and you will never get away from it. That's a consistent theme throughout my work. Um, and um, it, so um, I'll read just a little bit uh, from this. Um, and it starts out funny, so feel free to laugh. Yes, okay. <clears throat> the drug was known among the settlements as spare time, so named because that was exactly what it seemed to give you. It was also so named because spare time sounded a lot sexier than the sweat of the shiny mosquito which is what it actually was. The animal that excreted it had been discovered by the other, and as with all things discovered by the other, was exactly what its name suggested, a mosquito, practically indistinguishable from known world varieties, except it looked as if it were dressed in shiny blue spandex. Living out one's entire existence in a shiny spandex-like exoskeleton was apparently very hard work, for the mosquito perspired a lot. The first person to discover the remarkable properties of this fluid was not the other, but a resident of the mosquito's native territory. The settler had opened her mouth to yawn, and two mosquitoes in the act of mating in midair had flown in. She sputtered, then she gagged. Then to her immense surprise, she found herself cross-country skiing through a pine forest. She had never gone cross-country skiing before, but she became quite the expert before regaining consciousness in the arms of a concerned friend who had seen her crumple to the ground not a minute before. The mosquitoes involved didn't survive, much less experience any skiing themselves, but their sacrifice resulted in the discovery of a truly astonishing drug, one of the most powerful the more known world had to offer. If a bar of peace of mind took the edge off a hard day, five drops of spare time gave you a whole day of leisure, free of charge, though the exact proportion of time lost to time gained varied greatly from individual to individual. The drug was exceedingly rare, for the shiny mosquito was both difficult to find and difficult to catch. The most popular method of imbibing it was to swallow the creatures alive, because toweling off tiny insects and wringing their sweat into little jars was nobody's idea of a good time. Still, obtaining spare time using this latter method was possible, and it had the advantage of versatility. The drops could, the drops could be rubbed into the skin. They could be snorted up the nose. They could be used to coat the tip of a blow dart and shot into someone's neck. The latter was the version coursing through Anne's bloodstream at that very moment. If Anne had been someone else, Murgatroyd, for instance, or Nutmeg, she might have experienced a pleasant amble through a field of flowers or a luxuriously lengthy pre-dawn glimpsing session. But Anne was Anne, and Anne did not dream pleasant or luxurious things. She dreamed of the past, and consequently, spare time transported her there and stranded her on its desert isle. When Anne woke to the sound of the car engine switching off and Mama's voice announcing cheerily, we're home, she assumed it was one of the usual dreams, even though something was different. She couldn't place what. She helped Mama unload the car. She unpacked her suitcase. She cleared the junk mail and late payment notices from the dining table and laid out the bowls and chopsticks 
as Mama cooked the instant noodles. And after they finished washing the dishes, she and Mama arranged her talent division third place sash in the empty glass trophy case in the living room. And she listened impassively to Mama chatter excitedly about which trophies, when Anne won them, should go where. Then Anne took a shower, changed into her nightgown, brushed her teeth, blow dried her hair, let Mama tuck her in and turned out the lights. She fell asleep quickly, still haunted by the distinct sense that things weren't quite right. And it was only when Anne arrived at school the next day that she realized what one of the wrong things was. When she was walking from the bus to the school entrance and someone behind her gave her backpack a sharp downward tug, she landed on her butt with a painful thud. So sue me, yelled Jeanette Jones, which made everyone around her snicker. And it was when her chest tightened and her bottom lip began to tremble and she wished she could go back home and curl up under her covers that she figured it out. The division between her present and past selves had been elided. No longer was she inside and outside her younger self, experiencing scenes from her childhood, yet simultaneously able to occupy the role of detached observer. Somehow she and her younger self, Anan, had become one, fused together, thinking the same despairing thoughts, feeling the same awful emotions, seeing the world through the one pair of eyes within Anan's body. Her grown-up self was now nothing but a tiny blob attached to her younger self's consciousness, helpless to do anything but go along for the ride. Great, thank you. Thank you, Tiffany. Uh, what, what struck me, in, of course, in, that, in the early part of that piece is, is about the mosquito. Um, and of course, there's a lot of myths that we are familiar with uh, to do with the mosquito. How, how did you decide to work with that? What, what came at you, and unless it really was you were sitting there in front of the screen and something landed on your skin? No, I, well, you know, um, I also, I do attract mosquitoes. It's really annoying because wherever I go, mosquitoes just seem to eat me. Um, but I really like insects. And so actually, um, I thought I would study entomology, the study of insects at university. And then I was really stupid and didn't do research beforehand because I went to a women's liberal arts college in the US where they didn't teach entomology. Um, and I was like, oh, I guess I'll just um, major in English literature. Um, so that's what I ended up doing, but um, this sort of amateur love for insects. Actually, insects appear in all of my novels. Um, so if you look, there's always an insect in one of them. But I always thought, um, for the, the odd fits is about um, the odd fits is, is about people who don't belong, so they're odd fits, um, and they don't belong in the universe, and often um, people, they don't know why, but they really dislike um, odd fits, and they don't fit in, and odd fits often feel really awkward, and, and that mirrored my growing up. Um, I felt really awkward. I still feel a lot of times awkward, but 36 years of life has taken the edge off a bit. But, um, the mosquito was sort of a metaphor for that. Like, what animal do we really like? Not don't particularly like. Um, you know, sort of annoying. Um, and I was like, the mosquito. So let's let's populate um, this other you know imaginary world with mosquitoes. So actually, the only creature that can move from the territories within that imaginary world are um, variants of the mosquito. Um, yeah. When I think, if I think of. A mosquito up close, it looks like a perfect alien. Um, but in terms of the kind of influences from science fiction, I mean, you could write, uh, you know, the theme of feeling like an outsider. Uh, how did you move towards the genre of science fiction? Uh, that's really funny because actually, um, 
I'm really silly and I just write what I write. So actually the Oddfits didn't start out as a, as a sci-fi fantasy, um, you know, spec it didn't start out as speculative fiction at all. But um, it just somehow ended up that way. I just wanted, like, as I went over draft after draft, because it was my first novel, so I had like eight years to work on it. Um, gradually, I just put more speculative fiction elements into it. Um, and actually, like, I mean, I was really surprised when uh, an editor at, at my publisher picked it up and said, I really like it. It's fantastic, like, wonderful, you know, perf you know like a wonderful fantasy novel. And I was like, oh, it's fantasy? Um, so I don't know. I think just my mind tends to move, maybe move in, like, just unwittingly um, and maybe against my will move in directions that are more speculative than um, I intend to even. Okay, thank you. Uh, I would, we were sort of talking about this being in two parts, so rather than kind of leave the Q&A just entirely at the end, if just this breath, does anybody want to wa ask any questions at this point? Need time to warm up? Yeah, thank you. <coughs> so the SF community is, is very tightly knit community community, or it has been, partly because um, they were sort of, it was sort of them against the world for, for many years until it has become, you know, more kind of trendy and mainstream. Have you, um, has, has, has speculative fiction, have you, as writers of speculative fiction, experienced any backlash from SF writers saying, you know, you've invaded our space, or you're not really an SF writer, or I mean, what's been the reaction from S other SF writers? Uh, I mean, I think I've been kind of part of that community all along, so so that that question really doesn't apply. So um, it's, but I, I I do see that it's uh, that that us against them kind of mentality. Um, it's it's an interesting one, and I can it's understandable as well because there are. Uh, a lot of people, and I'm just speaking about the U.S. kind of U.S. fandom, I guess, in terms of that. And uh, so there's a lot of people that, like, when they were growing up, myself included, when uh, you know the kind of the books that they would read, the kind of movies that they liked, um, tended that way and were teased because of it. Um, and so, so it does form this kind of when you want to kind of form your own tribes, you find people who are attracted to the same things that you are, and it does become that that kind of uh, almost conflict. Um, and then when that becomes a very popular mode of entertainment, especially now, um, it, it can feel like that, that, okay, you're kind of co-opting this thing that I've loved all along. How dare you? Um, you're not a true fan, this whole true fan identity uh, or idea. Um, and uh, for me, it's always been kind of a welcoming thing. And I think that's part of the, 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 the part of that is the fact that it's the people that I choose to hang around with. Um, and that are actually very welcoming. But I, I know what you mean in terms of, you know, especially groups of fandom that say, no, 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 get, it, get out, this is our playground kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I've never experienced that. Um, and perhaps ignorance is bliss. <laughs> and sorry, my answer is quite short. No, I have no, but thankfully. Um, for mine, um, I don't really get a practice from the readers itself because um, Basically, um, when I write novels, probably there are bad comments on the Google read something or people saying that, oh, I can understand um, this writer's imagination. This imagination is too wild, I cannot understand this book. Even though I write in Malay, and most writers are Malay readers, and 
Um, for my short stories, itself, um, usually um, those people who understand the stories, um, they try to uh, saying politely, for example, like um, they will not comment harsh in a harsh tone. Okay, they just simply just say, um, "You need to write something like this, and yeah, this is not correct." Yeah, you just write, um, you please repress something like, um, for example, like in the Enigma of Raira. Um, actually, uh, there's a difference between the um, Bukun or something that's a how to translate that um, they are rukun they are something like uh, shadat they are, they are different different they are sound similar like that um, um, it's a rule it's a rule and um, it's a rule um, and there's a um, how to describe it um, in Islam, they have something like rukun. For example, like Islam, if you want to become a Muslim, you have to be sound in mind. But um, they have different words for that. Rukun and syarat sah. These are two different things. But I didn't differentiate that. Okay. They comment on that. Yeah. Okay, so that's uh, quite a distinct difference. Yes, can you take... Hi. <laughs> Hi, so I have two questions, actually. The first is for... Um, for Lachman and uh, Tiffany. So I've, I've always been curious in speculative fiction as um, both in the sense of a genre and a format to talk about what's going on in the region. Because like working with, um, with writers from Vietnam and from talking with writers from Southeast Asia, there's always this trope of other people expecting us to tell a certain stories in a certain way, engaging with certain themes. Like for say, like in Vietnam, that like you are expected to talk something about the boat people, the history of the war, things that are very sellable, but at the same time very problematic in literary stereotypes. So I'm just wondering what do you guys think about um, using speculative fiction as a way to poke at those histories, both personal and national, but in a sense that it's not graphic, it's not raw, but there's like the sense of sophistication to it, um, there's imagination in it. Oh, so just what do you think about speculative fiction as a format to look at personal history and, and memories that comes out of Southeast Asia in the region? And also the second question is for, um, I'm sorry, your name is, oh God. Jason, your name, um, I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> maybe they could take that one first before you, <laughs> yeah, yes, the second That's one. okay, go, go ahead. Uh, it yeah. will be quick. Um, actually, um, I have a copy of the one of the Lontar publication in my house. Unfortunately, I haven't read it. I will after this. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, like, in for Singapore um, writers, speculative fiction writers, what are the themes that they're engaging with um, that you have seen coming up in Lontar and that that they've used speculative fiction to engage with um, that you don't necessarily see them doing in other genres. Okay, so the first question is around in what way is speculative fiction uh, a suitable genre for you to tell personal histories that are different to what I think you mean like Western, Western readers expect if, if it's Vietnam, it's got to be about boat people um, as a space in which you can tell your own stories. Um. Okay, that, um, I'm really happy that that question was asked because um, actually when I wrote The Odd Fits, I was very, because um, I grew up in Singapore. I spent eight years of my life, my childhood in Singapore, six in Jakarta before leaving um, abroad for um, university. 
And I wanted to write um, a book set in Singapore, about Singapore, that didn't make Singaporeans cringe. Um, so I, and I wanted kind of to like upend the whole trope of like, you know, really like dashing, um, like, you know, white male protagonist goes to exotic place, gets girlfriend, is really cool. So actually the character of Murgatroyd Floyd is the son of British expatriates, but because um, secretly, because he's an odd fit, they, they don't know why, but they really hate him. And so because they're awful people, they send him to a local school. So he becomes um, localized. So actually he um, is local, but he appears white. So he actually gets sort of like not from both ends. Um, and also um, I wanted kind of, it was sort of my act. Like I was like, I want to write. All of these, you know, like also a lot of white authors are writing Asian people, you know, like, um, and I wanted to be like, well, I want to write an oh, oh, outwardly white person and I want to make him not the superhero, right? I want to make him sort of bumbling and inept and, um, you know, so that, that was my way of sort of um, writing back, I think, to that. And then in the more known world, someone pointed out that actually, um, the particular territory I've set it in is sort of a caricature of Australia, where there are these settlers and then there are the actual original inhabitants. And it's a blood-soaked land, right? And Australia is sort of invisibly soaked in blood, right? It was forcibly taken. It was you know, considered unoccupied territory and then settled um, on the blood of like indigenous people. And um, that, that sort of crept in as well. So I think it, it does creep. It's, it's informed my work quite a lot. Basically, I write in Malay. Therefore, um, when I write speculative fictions, I never think of it of the way to retelling the history. I'm thinking of uh, to introduce the lay readers toward a speculative fiction that has been written all around the world. Um, and I try to, for example, like giving them um, have a thoughts of, of, of the possibilities. For example, that I have written a novels about communism. What if communism conquered Nusantara in Malay? And I'm getting difficulties to get the book get published because of the I have to change the name, for example, Karl Marx, I have to change to Marx, I have to change the spelling, I have to change almost um, every name that equivalent to the really uh, to the original history. Just to avoid uh, maybe try to avoid the backlash and because the one uh, the publisher itself um, and they are the mainstream publishers and they have a constraint. They have to fulfill the, the law and everything. And uh, therefore, if, if I am thinking of um, sci-fictions, uh, speculative fiction in Malay, I wish I can use it that way. I will go further to that way. Uh, but first, I would, this, this is the time that where I'm, I'm simply, I want to introduce the Malay readers to speculative fictions. And we are not yet up to that stage yet to detailing the history, because I think the Malay is not ready for that. Um, Jason. Yeah. So, so, you, so you're asking about um, kind of the the concerns of Singaporeans uh, writing speculative fiction right now. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, so I, I edited uh, Lantar, uh, the Journal of Southeast Asian Speculative Fiction, for. Uh, for five, six years, um, through 10 issues, and our last issue was last year. Uh, but I'm also the fiction editor at Epigram Books in Singapore as well, and we have published uh, some speculative fiction there as well. So 
Um, it's interesting because it's on on one hand they're they're writing about what what more realist writers are writing about at the same time. Um, a lot of kind of anxiety about the future uh, because we're in this kind of unstable world right now, and so so not kind of knowing where we are. Uh, there was a rash of dystopias for a while. <laughs> Um, we have a uh, Epigram Books. We have a, an annual fiction prize, and um, and we've actually expanded it to all of ASEAN. So so almost pretty much everybody in this room, you guys can submit to it next year. Um, so if you just Google Epigram Books Fiction Prize, you can find out about that. So um, so so the novels that we published as well, we we had a lot of submissions that were dystopias. We published a few, and. Uh, it, it seemed like that was, to some people, it was almost like, okay, yay, they're publishing dystopias, I'm going to send mine too, and then just a flood of them came in. <laughs> so, so there was this uh, uh, kind of collective vision of this dark authoritarian future from quite a few, and qu quite uh, a few young writers as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's things that, that you know, people are writing in, uh, in a more realist vein, too, but it's, it's something that I'm seeing a lot of there um, in terms of dystopia, and I'm kind of tired of reading about dystopias now. <laughs> I'm kind of burned out on them. Um, but at the same time, we have, we have some really interesting uh, fantasy that's being written there, too. Our, our fiction prize winner from, I think, two, two years ago, two or three years ago, uh, is a book called The Gatekeeper uh, by Neralia Norisid. Uh, it was a fantastic fantasy novel, and it was like an alternate world novel um, that was very much based on Singapore and it was really looking at kind of the marginality um, of, of different groups in Singapore but but kind of expressing them in a different way that there were there were these sapient creatures that were actually the species that were uh, like part animal and so there were dog creatures and, and cat creatures and lizard creatures that were humanoid and they could you know and they had their own societies and everything and that was a way for her to, to explore these uh, these issues of marginality. Um, and kind of coming up against kind of larger society. So, uh, so it's, it's, there's a lot that's being, that's being written in that vein right now. Okay. Any other question before we go on to the next section? Okay. Ah, okay. yeah, please. I wanted to um, know your views that uh, sometimes science fiction or fantasy uh, in this part of the world, at least, it's not considered as literary now. And also, probably it's more suited to young adults and not really adult readers. So what are your comments on this? Thank you. Uh, can I go quickly? I, I, sorry, it's just because I get this all the time. Everyone's like, oh, the outfits, you know, I love it. Why, you know, young adult fantasy. And I'm always like, oh, yeah, yeah I'm so glad you love it. Technically, it's not young adult, but young adults could read it. And you could also read it. So... Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I'm, that's all. It's just. Um. Why, why do you think it has has that? Why why do you think it's not considered literary enough? I think it's because you know, like when you're a kid, your imagination goes everywhere, right? I think they did like some experiment where they showed lots of children um, a T, what a, what a grown up would say, like that is the letter T. But you know, like they come up with really like random answers, like four boxes, three boxes on top of one box or like a seagull, you know, like things like that. And I think um, as we get older, right, it's like a cell differentiating, you know, you start having your function and your certain way of looking at things. So I think maybe that's why people associate fantasy sci-fi with, I don't know, what do you I, I could go on and on and on and on about this, so, so I'm gonna try and keep this short. Um, but yes, this is, the, there, there is, it is frankly a prejudice that 
uh, that for, I mean, for decades, but probably at least for the last 50, 60 years that um, has kind of perpetuated. And I think a lot of it is, uh, and again, I can only speak to kind of the U.S. Uh, the U.S. kind of literary ecosystem, but um, but a lot of it was based on the fact that uh, when science fiction and fantasy first came about in the kind of in the 40s is when it really started to, to bloom. Um, and it was actually called science fiction uh, at that point. Uh, but uh, it was in uh, pulp magazines. So it was these magazines, and then when they started publishing books, it was very cheaply produced books that were produced um, en masse. So you had a lot of copies, but very cheap quality. And, uh, and they were not built to last. These were not like archival kinds of things. It was as entertainment. And, uh, and I think that because of that, because of that kind of legacy of where science fiction and fantasy started, there was a, uh, an elitism that was formed from people who weren't writing that. They were writing more realist kind of capital L literature that would look down on that and say, no, that's not real, that's not real fiction. This isn't stuff that matters. And it has just perpetuated you know, throughout the decades. But at the same time, you, you have to look at, if you take an even longer view, um, the, this, this kind of differentiation between realism and the fantastic is a fairly recent thing. Like, like the, the, the popularity of ghost stories in you know, 18th century, in 18th century England, you know, it was like they were writing any other, kind of, any kind of, any other kind of story. It didn't matter that it was a ghost story. It didn't matter that it had the supernatural in it. It was just part of you know, what these writers were writing. You go back to all the way back to myths, you know. So, so the fantastic is really, these are our oldest stories. These are the stories that have, you know, lasted for thousands and thousands of years. And so this, this weird kind of dichotomy has really only existed um, fairly recently. But yeah, it's still, I think it has gotten better. I have to say it has gotten better in probably the last 15, 20 years um, because there have been a lot more authors that were traditionally uh, more realist uh, type authors who were writing more fantastical or science fictional kinds of stories and unapologetically as well. So it has gotten better, but yeah, that's, that does remain. Look, you want to ask? Basically, when uh, we were writing in Malay, um, I can see that the pattern here is uh, the publisher nowadays, they don't declare that um, such book is science or the fantasy. They will try their best is to, to declare it as something else or something like thriller, this is Islamic novel or something like um, they will say that this is literary work. Okay, literary work. So, for example, what, like what I'm doing is um, I write a novel about a speculative fiction, speculative fiction, and I didn't tell them it is speculative fiction. I tell the publisher that um, it's about um, literary, even the title itself is Gerawan, something that sounds like people have to find a dictionary and find out what is the meaning of that Gerawan. And I try to craft it in a beautiful, in beautiful words in Malaysia. I try to play full with the words. And so that they, they didn't found any scientific uh, terms in that novels, and they didn't declare it as speculative vision. And they will say, "What is what kind of book they writing on?" I ask them, "What kind of book is this? Is this literary work?" Yes, literary work. It's part of, I never write a speculative fiction. I write. I didn't write a sci-fi or fantasy now because I, there's a, some kind of um, um, something that yeah stereotype that. Uh, science fictions and fantasy in Malay cannot sell. So therefore, the publisher, okay, I'll keep publishing them, but I will mask 
put uh, something. I try to put it under another label, <laughs> uh, and that it give me a trouble because right now I'm currently I'm looking for a um, or the books written in sci-fi in sci-fi and fantasy, uh, written by MLA writers. Sorry about that, Jason. So sorry. Um, so so. Some excitement at the end of the day. <laughs> So, so basically, you you have to disguise. You you, yeah, you, know, you, you have, have to, to pretend disguise. that it's not really. So it is. It is. There is that prejudice still, very much so. Okay. Um, can we? Sorry. Just yeah. Just to add to that, I mean, in the UK, it is it isn't considered. You know, there is no real prejudice anymore. I mean, if you look at you know M. John Harrison, who's writing you know science fiction and fantasy, he's writing about quantum physics with the novel Light or Fahrenheit four five one. You know, is considered perhaps literary. And Ursula Le Guin in Dune, mm. and and you know, the, so I think literary is a sort of you know false conceit. So I mean, I think it's just you know, I think that that's a label, and we we must I think ignore, <laughs> ignore it. Uh, right. Right. Okay, so let's just go on to the, the second excerpts. Um, we're, still, we're still trying to look at a little bit more in depth around the themes and techniques. Um, now, I was really interested, and thank you for finding the excerpts, of uh, parts where you have, you know, sections where you have written the piece, and then it changes significantly once it gets into the hands of your editor. And how did your editor work with you, or how did your translator work with you? Um, now, unfortunately, uh, the uh, screen is not working, so I think we maybe have to improvise a little bit. Um, read, if you could, just read certain parts, choose, uh, maybe a little bit shorter, I don't know, but depending, and then kind of tell us how exactly it changed and, and what kind of um, discussions and, and how you felt you know, you had to compromise or not, as the case may be. Um, Jason, if we could go with you first again. Yep. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, so what I'm going to read from is the is the the last story uh, in this collection. Uh, it's called Ikan Berbudi or Wise Fish, and um, and I'll talk a bit about the kind of the differences. It wasn't in the editing process. It was actually post publication, but it was between where it originally came from and this book. This is actually a kind of a greatest hits uh, kind of collection. It comes from my three previous collections. So. Um, so this one actually was from my first collection, Red Dot Ereal, which, which looks like that. Um, and uh, so the versions are different if you, look, if you compare the two. So I'll just read a bit from that one. Okay. Madame Fatima raised the segmented metal gate on her fish head curry stall with a raucous clatter, prompting several sparrows to alight from their feast of kaya toast crumbs on a nearby table and erupt upward into the Hawker Center's metal rafters. Block 117, Aljunid Market and Food Center, was sparsely populated at 10 a.m., with most of the breakfast diners having already finished eating and the lunch rush yet to begin. She appreciated the calm and the quiet that came with this time of the morning, a, type of, a time of reflection and of gathering herself for the onslaught of customers to come. Her stall was not nearly... <clears throat> excuse me. Her stall was not nearly so famous as those on Curry Row in Little India, like Mutu's curry or banana leaf Apollo, but her portion of the Hawker Center filled to overflowing every single weekday. And she'd done so well last year that she was able to buy her elder son, Amir, and his new wife their very own HDB flat. She pushed the gate on its curved track all the way up, turning on the turned on the stall's fluorescent lights and oscillating fan, and looked to the far corner of the stall, 
where, on a shelf above the stainless steel sink, away from the heat of her gas stove, rested a glass aquarium. Inside the aquarium, lazily treading water, was a grand red snapper with pointed teeth and auspicious markings, and it perked up as she approached. She stroked the side of the aquarium with her index finger, and the fish waggled its fins. Good morning, fish, she said cheerily in Tamil. Good morning, dear lady, replied the fish. Today is the day I will die. Madame Fatima stood there dumbfounded, but not because the fish had spoken. She'd enjoyed a loquacious companionship with the snapper for nearly three years, but ever since it pleaded with her to let it live, that it would bring her good fortune and good health as long as she gave it a peaceful, a restful place to exist. And it had made good on its promises. Her sales had more than quadrupled in the intervening time, which was a sort of consolation after the death of her husband from lung cancer. The money could not bring back Karim, but it did allow her a measure of security and material happiness, which was why the fish's announcement terrified her with its consequences. Why would you say this, fish? Because it is true. I have lived a long life, in part thanks to you, but it will come to an end later today. Are you certain? How can you know for sure, huh? It is a gift, dear lady, one that all red snappers, communicative or silent, are born with. In my experience, this knowledge is never wrong and is not to be taken lightly. Madame Fatima let that implication hang in the air as she went about preparing her kitchen for the day. She chopped brinjal and ladies' fingers and tomatoes into thick slices to be used later in her curries. Her knee was bothering her again today, the result of a hard twist earlier in the week. She'd popped down to one of the neighborhood private clinics later this afternoon after she closed up. Yet another irritant of her, advancing, of her advancing age. She had run track in secondary school and even won a few regional prizes. Injuries were part of any sport, and she couldn't count the number of times she'd previously twisted or sprained a knee or an ankle. She thought about the fact that she could no longer recover with the speed of her youth and let her Chinese chopper come down with added force on each innocent vegetable. I'm going to skip a little bit. There's some, some bargaining she tries to make with the fish. Um, and the fish makes the announcement that after it dies, uh, it wants her to eat it. The afternoon passed quickly, and at 2.30, she served her last customer, having exhausted her pescatarian supplies for the day, excepting a few errant vegetables. She and her son, Tofik, thoroughly cleaned the stall, scrubbing down every visible surface and some that were not. Madame Fatima took pride in her cleanliness and in the A rating that her stall had received from the government, one of the few in the whole Hawker Center. She made a list of ingredients for Tofik to pick up at Little India for the next day, and he tucked it into the pages of the book he was reading, a short story collection by a Sikh science fiction writer named Vandana Singh. He kissed her on the cheek and then walked off to his motorbike. Tofik was such a good boy, even if she didn't always understand him. She hoped, she, she hoped he'd meet a nice Indian girl and be happy like his older brother, Amir. Once he was out of sight, <clears throat> Madame Fatima stepped back into her stall and closed the segmented metal gate with her inside. She looked to the aquarium, hoping to have one final conversation with her friend, the talking fish, but it had quietly stopped moving and now floated upside down in his tank. Her eyes began to water, and she swiped at them with her fingers. She could cry later. She had work to do. Oh, okay, man. so I'm going to stop there. <laughs> so. Thank you, yeah.
So this is this is from the second part of the book, I think, and, and, and the second the sort of the short stories start to be located in Singapore with more references, local references. Yeah, I think they're kind um, of scattered throughout. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, and this story in particular, uh, obviously, um, um, there are a lot of local references. Um, what kind of changes then occurred between your earlier draft and and what has actually been published? Okay, so so the original, and it wasn't even a draft, it was actually in the published version of this book. So so it got through the process and actually was published. And um, so originally, it, was, it had mostly to do with the naming system that I was using, that um, originally her name was Mrs. Singh, so she was Sikh, and uh, and her her husband had a different name, her, her son had a different name, and uh, I was... Uh, and this, you know, the, the book came out, it was actually, the story was reprinted a couple times after that as well. And I did hear a couple times uh, during that, that that the way that I was actually uh, kind of approaching these characters was not really correct. And uh, especially in especially in the main character. And so uh, so I had a friend, uh, Gemma Pereira, who's a, a writer in Singapore, who uh, is Eurasian, she's uh, half Indian herself. and. And she was doing a, uh, she was adapting the story into a storytelling uh, uh, performance. And uh, so we, we were talking, and she brought that up again. And she's like, yeah, I'm not sure these things are really correct. And uh, what, you know, what sort of things do you, do, you, do you mean? I mean, just the fact that, for one thing, she's Sikh. Uh, for another thing, the, the naming conventions that I used, where, uh, where she and her husband had come from, was not really where a lot of a lot of Indians had come into Singapore from uh, from India into Singapore, and uh, so it was a lot of those kind of kind of small details, but they added up, and it was and I I just have to to kind of take my lumps and say you know I I did during the time when I was writing the story I thought I did enough research on it but I failed in that in that regard so. Uh, so those things, I didn't do what I should have done. I didn't do my due diligence on those. And so got called out for it later. And so because, um, because of the fact that this book was going to come out, uh, I wanted to finally correct that and make it accurate and authentic and how it, how it really should be. And so, so I asked Gemma, who had brought that up to me, I asked if she would uh, kind of tell me the things that would really fit a little bit better. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so she's Tamil in this version. And um, and the way that she is, is named as well is, is uh, more appropriate, and it's a lot of those little things. Yeah. Right, because I think I mean, a lot of people make the mistake that if it's if it's surrealist, you know, and it's dreamlike and so on, it doesn't, you know, there doesn't necessarily need to be any consistent logic. But in fact, uh, to, to kind of to make the tale twist, you need to have very accurate details in some. So it's got an internal logic. But there, there are fanciful uh, and crazy details elsewhere. But it can't all be dreamlike, like, and it can't all be surrealistic. And I think, I the, think the fact that it also takes place in kind of contemporary, you know, world. It's not, it's not something that I've extrapolated to another, another dimension, another reality, or in the future or something like that. It's, it's basically now. So if I don't get those details right about now, then it's very obvious. Yeah. Right. It doesn't read authentic, in its madness or whatever. Yeah. Okay, um, Tiffany, could you select, tell us a little bit about the piece you've selected? Well, I oh, mean, yes. so I, go well, for it. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go a bit rogue, because I sent you one excerpt. Um, and I feel like we all need a bit of perking up, because it is late afternoon. Um, so I'm just going to read from the very sensational first few lines, uh, 
passages of the novel. Because the novel begins with a, with a mass murder. With a mass murder? Yes. Okay. Um, okay, just regular mass murder. Yes. Um, when your sister murders 300 people, you can't help but wonder why, especially if you were one of the intended victims. Though I do forgive her if you can believe it. I tried my best to deny the strength of family ties when everyone was still alive, but now I realize the truth of the cliché. Blood does run thick, even if poison trumps all. It was all caught on surveillance tape, so there's no denying that Estella was the culprit. I haven't seen the footage myself, can't see it all in my present condition, but I can imagine it with great clarity. At the mouth of the corridor leading from the hotel ballroom to the adjoining kitchen, my sister appears. The angle of the camera makes it difficult to see her face, obscured by the enormous hairsprayed chignon atop her head. Obscu uh, but I'd recognize those calves anywhere. Peasant's legs, our mother always jokingly called them, disproportionately bulky for Estella's otherwise slender frame. Graceful in stilettos, despite her country bumpkin appendages, she glides out of one camera's purview into another's. My mind's eye sees her in the kitchen now, speaking to one of the staff, who grants her immediate entry upon learning that she's Irwan Sulinado's granddaughter. Graciously, she offers a pretext, a mission to reassure a germ-phobic aunt, perhaps. Any excuse would have served, since in Indonesia, the, wealth, the wealthy don't need reasons. They allow her free passage, Silakan ibu, ma'am, as you please, and let her sail on past flaming walks and stainless steel bins of pre-sliced meats and vegetables, fielding deferential nods from surprised and frazzled cooks. Only when they resume their duties does she strike, pulling a tiny vial from inside the high, stiff collar of her silk cheongsam and scattering its contents into the great steaming terrine of shark's fin soup with a flick of a jade-bangled wrist. I'm making this whole scene up, of course, except for the Cheongsam, a gorgeous golden emerald affair covered in delicate coiling vines that she'd bought years ago on vacation in Shanghai. That's where my mind beats out the security cameras. Such fine embroidery would never have registered on tape. Similarly, I bet the recording didn't catch the resolution in her step, the hardness in her jaw, the murderous glint in her eye that also went unnoticed by all the family members and friends in attendance that night, and to my shame, me. I've replayed the evening dozens of times in my head, and I'm sure of it. There was nothing out of the ordinary about her, except she was in exceptionally good spirits. Okay, and just going to the actual poisoning, so that's more fun. Okay, Estella's apology, her dying words, made sense to me after that. The chaos of the evening flooded back to me. The shrieking of the first victims as they began to choke and twitch, to retch and collapse, followed by a different sort of cry. The belated realization that one's life is about to end. The hotel ballroom spinning madly, guests staggering to their feet, trailing tablecloths and clenched fists, wine glasses and plates of peeking duck crashing to the black and gold carpeted floor. And I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, now, I, I am, uh, can you tell us a little bit, if it's just as a kind of potted history, because we're mm. running out of time. Yeah, yeah, so just very quickly, um, you know, what got edited in that. And actually, because it's the first scene, right, it had to be like, um, and you know, they were sort of marketing it as a literary thriller. 
So um, they wanted it to be like really like everything had to be very sparse. So there were a lot of like um, other things like scaffolding that, um, you know, when I was writing it, you know, I had her more musing on um, the type of poison that was used, all of that. And that all had to be stripped away um, in order to make, you know, the scene just very clean in terms of um, the details and very um, just hard hitting and, and violent. Even to the point where the first sentence um, up until like, um, you know, before it was ready to go to print, the editor wrote back and said, I just want us to get this first sentence absolutely right. So um, I even like tinkered with it, um, you know. Yeah, yeah, and so the first sentence went through like 10 iterations, I mean, before that as well. Thank you. Um, Lokman, would you read a part of your, uh, we had originally uh, wanted to read Punga uh, uh, in both uh, Malay and have the English as well. Um, so maybe just, uh, I would like to hear it in Malay uh, um, and uh, you can get the short story version in English. Um, it's still on sale. Um, maybe you can read a part of that. You can describe. Okay, basically, um, uh, when I write a pengap, um, basically I write something based on my experience on the um, in the major city, they have a massive traffic jam, and some people are unlucky one. They have to endure the traffic jam all days. And for, the, uh, and for my, based on my experience, that uh, once I got back from work, for example, I come up from my office, and I got everything done on the day. I think I have nothing left that I need uh, to bring back home. I feel like oh, I relax and everything. But once I got back into the car and I go back home, I feel like I feel so empty, so stuffy, so everything like life is so meaningless, like I'm so tired mentally. So this kind of thoughts, I can I try to transfer it into this kind of short stories. Here's the pengap. Okay, um, I read it in Malay, but I think just read the last part. Um, the, the last part is about um, how the narrator get into the stories and define the stories. So, Okay, I will read in Malay. Ah, kau, kenapa kau ada di sini? Lalu aku membalas, kota terlalu pengap, tersangat pengap, hingga aku terpaksa masuk ke dalam ruang ini, ruang kalian ini. Kita harus lari. Lari ke mana? Mana ada tempat? Ya betul, bayangkan dunia sudah menyempit. Kota itu dan pinggirannya sudah menyempit. Hingga naratif yang cuba menggambarkannya juga terpaksa masuk dalam cerita ini dan berpadat-padat. Kita tak boleh lari sebenarnya. Jadi, aku mahu menyahut tanyaannya. Tetapi bila padang yang patah, tiba-tiba berada di leherku. Aku meliritkan ekor mataku dapat melihat bagaimana Kak Tina dengan mata merahnya sedang menggenggam bulu padang dengan begitu penas. Dengan kemas, lalu dia membahas pelan rostan itu. Okay, mereka akan... Okay, aku tidak tahu bagaimana memeritakan segala-gala yang berlaku ke atas kota pengap. Kak Tina, Rostan dan Pak Ajis. Mereka akan berasak-asak di dalam ruang yang mengecil menjadi titik. Kian kedil, kian kecil, 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 kecil menjadi titik. Okay, thank you. That that's also a, a murder. There's a there's a knife involved, and um, this translator is here in the room. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, can you tell us how, what was the experience like to work with your translator, which you know in the end was uh, uh, sh sh shortlisted for the Commonwealth Short Story uh, 2019? Okay, the funny thing is, I never met her, and I don't know that she's translated her pieces. Because when I found out that 
the name comes out, oh, it's Adriana, okay? She's translated my stories without consulting me how it goes. But I think stories goes well. She's translated uh, every word, every in, literally, yeah. Everything is in there. He didn't skip. She didn't skip any, any, uh, any point or any words. Or any, uh, she just translated according to the story system. And I think it, when it was shortlisted for the short story prize, I think I don't. I wonder how they select the stories, how they view the stories as according to my view or according to Adriana's views. I'm not sure about that. But that's the interesting part because I don't consult her at all. Yeah. Okay, but the story ends very happily, though, right? And you actually were, 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 did do very well that story. Okay, a couple, just a couple of questions before we close. Okay, I have one last question, which is narrative fiction, historical fiction is a completely uh, another area in which you have to recreate another universe, another time. If it's the seventh century of, of, of a particular period, you, you know, we, we have no um, or very little evidence of what everyday life was or something living in, you know, 800 years ago or whatever. Why have you, have you considered ever locating any of your stories in the very early history as opposed to the future? Uh, not early history for me. It's been, I have uh, one story um, that's, in, that's in a new collection. Um, that is uh, it's called Boogeyman that does take place in kind of the mid-1800s. But that's probably about as far back as I, as I go. So it's, uh, yeah, it does, it, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work writing historical fiction because you've got to really, really do your research and really get your, get your facts right. And as you say, you, you are creating basically the world of that time um, for your reader because it is, we are such a, that's such a remove from it. So, um, so there is a lot in common with writing speculative fiction in terms of trying to create that world. Uh, and it's very, very hard. I think that the people that write it, that do it well, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a very tough thing. <laughs> okay. And anybody else? Uh, I'm still doing a research on the Karakatoa and based on the historical fictions. Uh -huh. And I thought to explain some little bit of mythos on, based on around, around that area. But it's a lot of work, of research. I'm doing research now, and I'm not sure when will I start to write it. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, so I used to you know, be an academic researcher, and I think that just bites me in the butt because I have to get all of the historical details correct. So um, my books only go back decades. And for the book, you know, The Outfits, which was set in Singapore, because Singapore changes so much because of construction and all of that, I had to make sure everything I referenced it existed during the time I, you know, it's set in 2004. Um, and for um, Under Your Wings, which is set in Indonesia in the early 90s, um, and then there are some scenes set earlier than that in the 80s, I really had to also do some research about, um, you know, um, what was possible, what was there, and all of that, yeah. Okay, very last question, which is around, the dystopias that you mentioned earlier, Jason, I mean, it seems like there is a lot of uh, uh, depression around what looks like the, f the, the immediate future, unless we save the planet, it's all gonna go to hell. Uh, is there a future for speculative fiction? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's, uh, because as I say before, this is kind of our, our oldest mode of storytelling, and I think it, it can't help but continue. Yes. 
Yes, but it's a long journey. Long journey, yes. So, everybody out there, please be encouraged. There's even also an editor who's right. Please thank our panel this afternoon. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for being here. The end of the world as we know it. <laughs>